We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to the Menzies Research Centre podcast. I'm Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And uh, we're using this COVID period to generate some very interesting discussion from people around the world who have different approaches to this uh, crisis or multiple rolling crises as we talk about it. Well, joining me today from the UK is Mary Harrington. Uh, she's a columnist with Unheard. Mary, welcome to the Menzies Research Centre podcast. Thank you for having me. Unheard, which is where I first came across your writing, it's managed to keep above the fray a bit, hasn't it, during the COVID crisis? Well, I don't know if it's been exactly above the fray in the sense that we've tackled some quite challenging questions, but I think we we have an advantage perhaps over the the daily papers in that you know if you're if if you're publishing opinion pieces rather than the daily news, you don't have quite such a, a pressure on you to sort of get right down into the fine detail. Um, my sense is certainly from watching the the lobby journalists and the the response to the press conferences that the British government did, that the a, a lot of the press have sort of formed a kind of muscle memory habit of treating every political situation as an opportunity to catch out politicians. And um, I can sort of, I mean, my, my take on this is that I can understand how that's happened because for a long time we've been living in an era of political consensus. And if you're going to sell newspapers, you really have to try and manufacture some sort of discord or disagreement or, or news hook, really. So I think the most, most of the mainstream journalists that we have who've been established for any length of time cut their teeth on trying to catch politicians out because that's the only way you could try and generate any sense of the being a, a more than a fag paper between the two opposing parties. But, you know, the situation has changed radically under our feet now, such that, you know, we're, we're, facing, we're facing serious stakes in our, in our political life, in our life as a, as a country, as a world. For the first time in a very long time, you know, the, the, the end of history has well and truly ended. You know, we're back in a world of great power politics. We've got a global pandemic. We've got, you know, our economies, are, you know, the, the foundations of everything feel like they're dissolving under our feet. And you know the mood—the mood amongst normal people, you know, people who are, who are less sort of fixated on the on the daily argument than perhaps I am—has um, been exasperation at the way the press has responded to the COVID crisis and the and to the and to politicians. It's been a sense a sense of outrage that they should still be trying to manufacture gotchas when actually what we need is is a sense of you know slightly something more measured, something something dare I say it more sort of cooperative and coming together. And the and a lot of, a lot of our press has really has really struggled to change gear in that way. And perhaps unheard just by virtue of being a bit younger, a bit not and not quite so embroiled in 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 that way of doing things has been has been a bit more capable of taking a step back and looking at some of the some of the more structural issues underneath it, something else happened to journalism too hasn't it journalists have become players they're, they're attached to one side or the other um you know it, it's a bit like um a football writer maybe because he's a collingwood supporter you should read a uh, or Cambridge United perhaps supporter in, in your case, you should be able to read their report of the match without guessing which side they support. But uh, it, nowadays, it's uh, you can t- you can tell that you can tell that just by the headline, by the paper it's in, 
um, by their first paragraph, you know which side they support. Yeah, I mean, I'm if I'm if I'm honest, you know, I I, I actually don't subscribe to the view that it's possible to take an objective detached perspective on anything really we're all in the mess whether we like it or not you know we all have a stance but i what i do think is possible and where i think some perhaps some writers struggle um is in situating themselves in what it is that they're writing about but still doing their best to appraise things um, to the best of their ability clearly and and charitably you know trying to trying to take the you know approaching something from a situated perspective if you like but with with intellectual honesty um, rather than this very transparent partisanship which comes across really really very strongly from from quite a few writers nowadays and i find that frustrating because i just don't think it has to be like that i think you can I, I think we can acknowledge that we're all we all have a stance but we can still we can still approach talking to one another with intellectual honesty and try and try and sort of engage with one another in good faith the COVID-19 crisis, when it first broke out, I thought, well, here's something completely out of our experience. You know, there's not going to be a political angle to this. But very soon, like probably within days, um, you know, so much of this was politicised. And we'd come out of here from uh, a long debate about climate change. Well, that's still going on, of course. There's a, that's the political divider in some senses here. And in Britain, of course, with the uh, Brexit argument, you're on one side or the other. But those two sides are pretty soon found horses in this race too, haven't they? I think that's absolutely right. Um, well, I mean, what's very strange about COVID is the way, um, I mean, at a, at a physiological level, it seems to attack underlying conditions or it reveals underlying conditions in people who've been infected by it. And in, a, in some bizarre way, it seems to be doing that to our body politic as well, and even to our economies. You know, it's it, it's found weaknesses in terms of the fragility of global supply chains. It's found weaknesses in terms of um, you know animal to human transmission, and it's found weaknesses in terms of its. I, I see it really accelerating some existing, existing and not particularly desirable trends in our, um, in in our politics. You know, whether that's whether whether that's provide you know throwing fuel on the on the fires of um, identity politics. Or, um, or indeed, you know, centralising capital even more aggressively while it, while it annihilates middle class and small shopkeepers, which is something that we're now beginning to see as an absolute holocaust of small businesses um, throughout, well, throughout every nation. You know, big, big retailers like Amazon, um, you know, the, the, the online supermarkets, they're all coining it at the moment. And the high street is just dying on its feet. And it was already. And, and what's happened really is that it's accelerated that. And somehow COVID seems to be doing that at both a metaphorical and also a political and a physiological level. It's quite extraordinary and horrifying to watch. Uh, and the role of government too, I mean, Britain as, as here, of course, <coughs> it's, it's prompted a whole lot of extra government spending, government support. Um, uh, and again, that means that, um, you know, businesses here, small businesses are, are, are falling by the wayside. And, um, you know, you, it, it's going to be hard for them to recover from this. Yeah, I mean, I think if there are if there are any positive long term consequences, or you know, there's any any glimmer of hope whatsoever, and I really hesitate to talk about positive long long term consequences in a pandemic that's already killed hundreds of thousands of people. You know, it will be they they will not be visible for a long time. You know, one of the one of the small glimmers of hope that I see has been a rebuilding of capacity and connection at the absolutely hyper local level. I mean, to, to, to give you to give you an example very close to my home, my street now has a WhatsApp chat group, uh, most of which isn't, you know, and it was created 
to to support one another. For example, if, if a family was quarantining and needed somebody to pay in a check for them at the post office, you know, really, really mundane kind of domestic level stuff like that, or help each other out with shopping. But it's become it's it's become a, a, a street level um, community. You know, people people people. You know, it's become a merry-go-round for secondhand goods and and general sort of you know local level gossip, and I think I think things like that are happening all over all over the place. Um, but that's not something which is visible really at the national at the political level. It, it is, however, something which I think is very missing in our lives. You know, we've seen a hollowing out of civil society. You know, co- corris- corresponding to or mirroring a sort of ever greater centralisation of governments. And although I'm not massively familiar with Australian politics, my sense is that there's something of that has been happening at your end, as, on your side of the world, as well as ours. But you know, that that can't really be reversed unless hyper unless hyper local capacity building and community building forms the foundation for it so if there's a if there's a very long-term um, glimmer of hope then i see i see covid as having been a springboard for prompting some of that change yeah but I'm, that's I, that's a pretty small it, it's a pretty bleak glimmer of hope against really quite a very 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 long list of catastrophes i, I found in these covid19 era interviews that that uh, you know it's a pretty sort of gloomy miserable discussion and then at the end you'd understand this as a a student of English literature, I look around for a redemptive ending. What what happy things can we say? We've got them here at the start this time. Um, so let me bring out one more. I mean, I think this very conversation we're having now, the use of discovery of, of the technology that was there that's allowing us to communicate. Um, podcasts have really taken off. Ours have, other people's have. Uh, and, and it's a way of having like a permanent conversation, isn't it? Not just with um, people, you know, close to you, but people across the world. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I've been really interested at the way um, podcasts in particular seem to have gained traction. I mean, perhaps you can you can relate that to this this frustration, this widespread frustration with um, mainstream organs of journalism who seem to have taken sides in a culture war that most people in my certainly not from small town England, most people haven't really signed up for. And I think perhaps perhaps podcasts, um, which where, where it's possible to be long form and it's possible to be reflective and it's also a conversation you know it's not a polemic there is there's, there's less scope for a polemic because there's a relational aspect to it i think they they provide scope for some for for, for a kind of discourse which is perhaps a little bit more human and people are really craving that the bbc i sense is is um uh suffering a little bit of relevance syndrome as the abc is here uh, be, just precisely because people can um, communicate in other ways now. We don't need a national broadcaster as our forum. And, and the, of course, the other thing that's been happening to the big national broadcasters, to yours and to ours, is they've been suffering through Netflix and those other productions because they simply can't match the, the revenue. Uh, how do you see the BBC at the moment? I'm acutely ambivalent about the BBC. I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of my culture. It's a huge part of British culture. I have a huge amount of respect and affection for the BBC, which has been part of national life and conversation for getting on for 100 years. Um, I'm, I'm fr- I share many people's frustration with the way it seems increasingly to be taking one particular side in what could potentially what could if it wanted to be a much broader conversation about who we are and what we really share um i mean i think it, it has a the bbc has a structural problem which is that it was created explicitly with the aim of fostering a national conversation you know in in terms of 
a set of shared values, which at the time were pretty much taken for granted. You know, shared shared values about you know who we are as a nation, what we believe, the things the things which we broadly speaking think are important. And I think a lot of that shared foundation is now gone, and with it, um, increasingly, I think is a popular is popular support for a, a national a national tax in order to fund it. Really, I mean, to so so to put put it more succinctly, you know, why why should we pay for a a broadcaster which which doesn't share doesn't share our values? And and you hear that from the left and the right and the weird left and the weird right and all, all, all manner of people, you know, increasingly with the exception of a sort of minor tranche of upper middle class urban people who broadly vote Labour and um, think we should all have capitalism but redistribute a bit. Um, and that's that's kind of uh, that's fine as far as they go. And you know, I, I have I have many many friends among that group of people. I'm technically one of them myself. Um, but I I think. I think perhaps some among them don't recognize the extent to which their worldview isn't universal. And perhaps there's an exercise in listening, which um, is not taking place. And the fact that 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 listening is not taking place is going to pose longer term, a severe threat to the survival of the BBC. Now now you were a Brexiteer, you were pro-Brexit. Tell me about how you came to that position. And also I sense it was a deeply... um, divisive issue to the extent that it divided friendships it divided families um tell me about that whole experience well it's i, I went I, I went up to oxford 20 years ago to read french and german yeah and my my clear plan at the time was to to graduate with a with a good degree in in modern languages and go and join the eu gravy train i just seem to remember even putting it like that i i took it for granted um all the way through my 20s that the european union was a good thing and only very gradually um, just by by dint of reading the papers and starting and thinking about what was happening in the world and looking, particularly I think what what happened in Greece um, around the time of the financial crisis and the and the euro crises that followed on from that, I was abs- I was genuinely shocked by by the European Union's treatment of Greece. And although I wouldn't go as far as to say that radicalised me, it certainly it, it it certainly brought a different perspective to this very very high minded. Um, this this very high-minded narrative of um, you know solidarity and progress and you know movement towards one European polity. You know, it became clear that actually under the bonnet, you know, it was considerably more complex than that. So so I suppose that was probably that was the start of the journey. And then you know I started to read a little bit more into the structures and the politics of it, and particularly into the conflict between English common law and um, the sort of Napoleonic foundations of the European Union, and came to the conclusion that actually there was something, there was an irreducible conflict here. Um, the, and, and if we remained in the European Union, the only upshot of that was going to be, the inevitable upshot of that had to be that just the dissolution of English democracy as it's been, as it's been going for several centuries now, and that I, I, I realised I wasn't comfortable with that. And finally, I, I lived in France and Germany for a while as a child. Um, I went to school, I, I'm, I'm still decently fluent in French and German. Um, and I, I sort of thought it over and I thought, well, you know, how, how plausible, based on my experience, actually is um, merging the polities of 27 European nations. You know, how, how, how much from my own experience of being educated in these three countries do I actually believe that's possible? And I realised that actually, no, I don't. Um, I think that the European nations have their own character. And to be clear by that, I don't mean some sort of, some sort of you know, tub-thumping, knuckle-dragging white nationalist 
um, character, but they, they do all have their own character. And I think once you, and you, you can't just spooge all of those peoples together indiscriminately as one giant polity, because a polity has to have a sense of itself. It has to, it has to have an understanding of itself as a demos and what it stands for and what it will and won't wear. And, and, I, and my sense is that those things are quite different um, across the European nations. And it just seemed to me that um, attempting to, to homogenize those things, or at least to merge them politically from the top down, uh, was just the wrong way to go about it. You know, it may well be that at some point the European nations will come together and see themselves um, as, as some sort of collective policy, but I, I don't think it's possible to, revert, to engineer that from the top. And so all of those things fed, fed into, so I, I hopefully sort of fairly carefully critical perspective on the European Union. And when it became apparent that, you know, there was actually a, a plausible possibility of being able to have a referendum on it, I realised that this was something I actually felt quite strongly about. So I ended up participating in a small way in the Vote Leave campaign. I mean, I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking hyper-local. I was heavily pregnant at the time, delivering leaflets and running stalls. But uh, So I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, running media campaigns or anything. But but, but I realised it mattered to me, and actually I ought to, I ought to get out and um, participate in some way in helping, helping to make this happen, if possible. I want to pick up on the reaction to that, but I want to go back to something you said. You, you mentioned the common law principle. That, that, mm-hmm. And I, I think this is, this is, this is important and, and um, too little understood. That I mean, yes, there's something absurd and um, unsustainable about a supranational body like that that... Um, with, with very, very limited democratic accountability that, that seems to take on a bigger and bigger role. But there is a fundamental difference of, of, of approach, a philosophy of understanding and tradition between Britain and um, what we used to call the continent when I was a kid. You know, it, 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 it is. Can, yes. you, can you explain the common law and why that matters? There are people much more expert in British constitutional um, stuff who can speak much more clearly to this than I can. But, I mean, one, one, one key, John Gray has, has written, that's a sort of philosophical and high level about it, very, very beautifully. Uh, one, one of the, one crucial distinction between um, the, way, the way British politics has historically worked and the way the European Union works is, is this idea that no parliament can bind its successor. You know, there's no there's no sense of English law being a ratchet. Um, you know, a, any any given parliament within the British tradition can pass a law and then have that repealed by a subsequent parliament should 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 the people democratically vote them in and 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 decide that that's actually how we'd like to do things now. And that's that's been a major contributor to this to to a very sort of a gentle, I suppose, a gentle evolution for the most part of British democracy, at least since the Civil War, which was less gentle. Um, but the, the European Union doesn't work like that. Um, they, they talk about the acquis communautaire, which is the, I mean, roughly, you know, it's the, 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 the collective acquisition, uh, the, the body of European law, which once it's implemented is extremely difficult to get rid of. I mean, there are theoretically mechanisms for doing it, but they're so monumentally arduous that in practice it doesn't happen. So once, once a regulation or a law is passed at the European level, that's it. It supersedes national law and it can't be repealed. And that that's, that's puts the European approach radically in conflict with the British approach. So in effect, what happened when we joined the European Union was that we, depending on, we, we, we effectively relinquished the, you know, one, one parliamentary body um, relinquished on behalf of all future parliamentary bodies the right to 
um, the, the right to repeal subsequent British legislation. Does that make sense? So we, it does indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, 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 so we, you know, one, one Parliament voted to give up the the to, for for Parliaments to give up the right to not bind their successors, and what's happening right now um, is is that that is that we're in the process of reversing that, in theory at least. Well, um, it's a bit I like mean, unscrambling are, an egg now, isn't it? Because you've got this horrible yes. mixture of right, exactly. We, we've got this hideous mixture, and actually, I think a lot of European law is here to stay. And we're going to have to be very realistic and very pragmatic about how much of European regulation is here to stay. I mean, again, you know, the European regulations as such, for the most part, was not was not something that I personally objected to. I mean, who who, who could possibly object to better safety standards in toys? That just seems that's, that's, that seems a stupid thing to get hung up on. But the constitutional principle I feel is important. Um, and the, the uh, there are there are a number of conflicts as well with the idea of English an English law which is grounded in precedent, and an English a, a, a body of rights which are grounded in you being allowed to do anything except what's explicitly forbidden, which again is in conflict with with the more Napoleonic approach which says that you're not allowed to do anything apart from what you're explicitly permitted, um, and the, and again you know those two approaches to legislation have have come into conflict with one another you know creating some sort of frustrating difficulties around you know the 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 growing body of human rights law for example which is i mean that's that's not a subject which i i really i feel at all qualified to speak in but it's it's a regular source of frustration you know in the in the british press that idea of a, if i can use the phrase a permissive society like one like britain we inherited here in australia a society in which you can basically do something unless it's prohibited whereas versus the European approach and approach of many other countries that basically um, you can't do it unless you're allowed. Now that, that 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 principle, I think, has a profound effect on a society. It makes it either you know creative and inventive and entrepreneurial because you can just have a go, or it makes it one in which you're sort of always checking and checking yourself and checking your actions. It. Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid I'm probably more pessimistic than you on this front, in the sense that I think we've been. Britain has been a European Union member for long enough that enough people have become accustomed to the European way of doing things that I, I don't know if we're going to get the the, the previous way back. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if we're going to... I don't think it's as simple as you say as unscrambling an egg. Um, I, I think we're going to have to accustom ourselves to a public expectation of much greater regulation than, than perhaps was historically the norm in Britain. And I mean, there's an argument, you know, a lot of the post-liberal political theorists make the argument that in fact that's the, that's the direction of travel of liberalism anyway, because by, by dismantling the sort of civil society level of moral codes, um, you end up having to, you, you, you end up inevitably piling more obligations on the state to micromanage people's behavior because, the, because there are no social codes can, confining or, or constraining what people do anymore so they would argue that that's the, the post-liberal argument is that that's that that body of micromanaging sort of social um, legislation is inevitable even in historically liberal societies like britain and the united states um so what what was the reaction when you started to campaign because i i, I correct me if i'm wrong but i think cambridgeshire would would definitely be in a remainer sort of zone is it Cambridge, Cambridge is the city of Cambridge, um, is is very firmly Remain. I don't, I, I don't think it gets much more Remain than the city of Cambridge. Um, the county of Bedfordshire, 
where I live is much more mixed. I think my, my district voted pretty much exactly 50-50. Um, and my, 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 I live in a small town of about 10,000 people, a very nice, civic-minded, small market, British market town, very lovely place to live. And it, but it's a, it's, a real mixture of, it's a real mixture of communities and classes. And it was, it's very clear to me, running a street stall, that the, the split was, was, quite, was, was very strongly class-based. You know, those people who were more, more middle class, who were perhaps commuters, working in London and living in Potton at the weekends um, were, were much more likely to vote Remain. Whereas, for example, if every time a farm vehicle went past and saw the Vote Leave banner on the square, we'd get a toot and a wave. So, so the farmers, the, the farm, or at least the farm workers, the farmers were, again were mixed because there, were, there was a lot of difficulty there for them around subsidies um, from the common agricultural policy. Big landowners tended to be Remain. Um, Smallholders and farm workers tended to be Leave. Um, yeah, I mean the the split, which has been much remarked on since between between the classes and the cultures, you know, was very very evident to me even then. Actually, funnily enough, it was even evident in the campaign, which was split along class lines. You know, there was the Leave.EU campaign, which was the unofficial Leave campaign, um, which was founded by Nigel Farage. You know, really out of his his movement, grassroots out. I think it, I, I forget what it called itself in the end. Um, was was very much more oriented towards the kind of populist message on Leave. Whereas vote leave, vote leave sort of calibrated itself much more for for the kind of metropolitan um, palette, and and the, actually I I think the I, I remember thinking at the time that the conflict between the messaging on of those two campaigns was going to create some problems for leave further down the line actually if we did manage to win the referendum and so it proved um, the 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 divergent aims of different parts of the leave campaign have have created some of the challenges that we face now in, in dealing with, you know, what does leave actually look like? Yeah, you, you point there to one of the great dynamics in um, in politics and culture, and that is, you know, um, class, I guess, but, but principally people that work with their hands versus people that sit on their bums all day and those kind of jobs. But, but there's another dynamic, I think, and, and um, that is age. And this is becoming increasingly apparent here in Britain. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that if, if the voting age had have been restricted to 35 and nobody over 35 could vote, then um, you'd have a, a, a Labour government very firmly by now. Well, I think so. Some of it, very straightforwardly, has to be down to the fact that the, if you have to be over a certain age to remember not being part of the European Union. I mean, it's, I think I think a lot of it really is just as simple as that. You have to be over a certain age to remember to remember life before Tony Blair. I mean, I the, the first election I voted in was the one where Tony Blair came to power. Although I don't, I don't, I, I honestly don't remember who I voted for, but it wasn't Tony Blair. Um, that was, and that was 1998. Um, I remember it well. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I'm 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 middle aged now, and I can only very dimly remember life before 1998 and before Tony Blair's social revolution, um, before. The social he there came Margaret Thatcher's um, economic revolution, and before that, Britain was just a very different country. And I think older people older people remember what Britain was like before the the great revolutions of social and economic liberalism in the United Kingdom. You know, both of which brought enormous benefits, but have not been without costs. Um, and and older older people, I think, perhaps have a more nuanced perspective on whether those two revolutions have been an unalloyed good. Um, and certainly for younger people, it's taken it's taken pretty much as gospel that um, the 
the social liberalization that came in really really with new labor onwards has been has been you know uncritically a good thing and many many aspects of it have been a very good thing you know we're all as my mum said to me some time ago mary you just have no idea what what a stifling place britain was in the 1980s or the 1970s you know you, you could you'd be tatted out by little old ladies if your children misbehaved in public and that just doesn't happen anymore i mean that's a tiny example of the sort of thing i mean but it, it, it was a much more conformist place it was a much more constrained place in some respects and the fact that we don't have that now is in many ways a positive thing um but in, in other respects it's sort of um it's it's created its own difficulties you know the people who do well in a society where there are no guardrails are doing really well and other other parts of society where perhaps you know having a slightly more having having slightly more structure um who, who would thrive in a in an environment like that are really struggling so it's it's producing this brutal polarity both socially and economically um between people who can thrive in a in this radically free radically individualist society and the people who are who are now you know struggling or drowning um, um, and I think young young people in particular, you know, don't don't face so many of the of the downsides of being radically free because you haven't tried you haven't tried getting married or raising children in, in an environment like that, for example. And I think it's it's really it's really when you have kids that the rubber hits the road on whether or not social liberalism is an unalloyed good. And you know, and the birth rate is tanking. So is is it any wonder that is it any wonder that our politics is a getting more polarized and b getting more liberal among the young? Let's pick up on the on the the young, the uh, millennial generation, perhaps we might call them, um, because you wrote something quite recently, which um, I, I thought was an excellent analysis of uh, or, or thought on why in this during this COVID period with the Black Lives Matter movement and even before that with some of the debate over around the Extinction Rebellion and so forth, and these are movements which which disproportionately attract younger people. There's this real authoritarian streak, isn't there, coming in? And and I hadn't really worked out why that was, but you you came up with a, I thought, a pretty good theory on that one. Well, my my theory, and I, and I certainly don't think it accounts for all of it, because I mean, for example, Extinction Rebellion. While while I question some of their methods and I question their lack of policy, you know, I don't think they're completely wrong. You know, there are there are serious problems with the way we're relating to our environment at the moment and they're, they're not wrong to point that out and likewise you know there are serious problems with racial dynamics in lots of lots of parts of the of the, of the developed west and you know the and black lives matter are not wrong to point that out um, while while again you know there are there are other difficulties with that political platform um where i th- where i see authoritarianism coming into the picture and the, the theory the you know the angle i was coming at it from in that piece was was a much more personal and a much more intimate one, which is about um, how how people relate to the world and how people relate to the public square and how people relate to politics if they've been micromanaged all through their childhood. Which is, um, I'm I'm a parent. I, my daughter is my daughter is coming up to four, so she's she's right at the other end of this. But it's been my observation that increasingly over the course of my adult life, um, childhood has become a very constrained space. Um, where I mean I, I I had a fairly bog standard. I was born in the late seventies and I had a fairly bog standard nineteen eighties childhood where we spent from a young age a lot of time just noodling around on our bikes. You know, such was small town life in in you know, however many years here, several decades ago. But it just isn't like that now. I mean and this is this is not an original observation. And what, what children seem to be growing up with instead is is this very structured, very micromanaged, very sort of regimented space where 
and particularly among the elites, they're being hothoused from dawn till dusk every day. Their, their social lives are, are controlled, structured, micromanaged, and even, even, even personal relationships, you know, down to down to the level of minute interactions, are being heavily controlled by external authorities. And I think under those circumstances, it's very difficult to learn the kind of interpersonal negotiation and management of conflict, which is one of the building blocks, in my view, of um, healthy democratic debate. And I think that's I think that approach to parenting is feeding steadily. Uh, it's feed is feeding increasingly into the production of young adults who, who who don't know how to debate because they've just not been raised to do it. What they've been raised to do is is you know operate through these very structured, um, in these highly highly structured interactions where conflict is managed by an external authority. You know, any, I mean, to put it another way, you know, they, they get sent, they got sent on play dates all the way through their childhood, where if, if they had a fight with their friend, then a parent would intervene. And I think, you know, be, it's, it's really no surprise to find that these young people, if they find themselves, you know, having, having, for example, a bad sexual encounter at university, instead of resolving it interpersonally, they'll turn straight to the university authorities. You know, who, is it any wonder? You know, that's, that's what they were, that's what they've been doing all the way through their childhood. And, and but once you once you move that out of universities, you know, as we're now beginning to see into the public square, then you know that raises some very serious questions about our you know our political institutions. Full stop. Because you know once you start trying to navigate you know big 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 ticket high stakes political questions like how do we how do we do how do we resolve our ecological issues or how do we deal with racial injustice, um, and you and you ask those questions to a bunch of young people who are habituated to having external authority resolve interpersonal conflicts then suddenly suddenly you're into a situation you're looking at a situation where democracy and debate in the public square as we've been accustomed to it for some time just isn't isn't really going to work and i think that's we're, we're going to be dealing with that question now for some time yeah because i think I, I see it getting worse democracy requires trade-offs always and that's the problem isn't it with this in, this absolutist position which uh, you find increasingly being taken on um, all those hot button issues: climate change, um, Black Lives Matter. You know, you, you, um, it, it's um, and these these movements are all, all the more insidious, I think, for the reason you say. I mean, we all, we all see something in their cause which is admirable. We nobody nobody wants people to be treated um, unfairly because on the grounds of their their race or ethnicity, and and nobody. Um, wants us to to ignore the demands of the planet, but by taking it to extremes, they turn it into, uh, you know, you must do this or else position, which is is you know impossible to deal with through the democratic process. Yeah, I think I mean well, the the other the other thing that comes across to me very strongly from this this new style of debate or this new style of politics that we're seeing is. I get a sense that a lot of a lot of the people who are who are putting their energy into political campaigning are doing it out of a place of great personal distress. Um, they, I, I see I see people, young people, who are frightened, who perhaps don't have a great deal of hope or optimism about the future, and who genuinely struggle with how to do interpersonal conflict. How, how to reconcile um, different points of view, how to reconcile disagreement, um, and who are who, who are turning towards this extreme and sometimes, you know, in practice, quite authoritarian approach 
and authoritarian set of demands backed up by um, this a, a sort of collective F punitive um, reaction if anybody steps out of line um, because they just don't know how, how not to do that. But, but it's, it's coming from a place of deep distress. And I, I honestly don't know how you, how you speak to that. I honestly don't know. And I, but, but one thing I do feel very strongly is that um, the, if you like, the backlash that we, that, that we often see to that, that mood um, where where it's mocked, you know, people talk about snowflakes or people talk about de derisively about cancel culture or about um, author the authoritarian youth or you know, however you want to put it. it I, I think it's mistaken to see it like that because a lot of it is coming out of a place of great personal distress, and you know, unless unless that can be met and spoken to um, with charity and you know, thoughtfulness, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, because the worst that could happen would be we have some kind of intergenerational war hardening where um you know we, we don't we don't find it very hard to understand or talk to um in my case the younger generation and the younger generation presumably vice versa uh, that would be yeah, um, destructive that would be horrendous mm. that would be that would be horrendous and i and if i'm honest i think there's to a degree that's already what we have i don't think it has to be like that i mean I, one, one thing which i also think is interesting and you know perhaps offers some counter to the, the the sort of doomy narrative on this is that the generation which is now entering adulthood um, beyond the millennials really don't see it quite the same way at all you know they're they're even more net native than the millennials um, and and one of the things that surprised me I mean it might just be my filter bubble it might be that I'm not talking to to normie zoom normie zoomer young people um, but my sense is that they are they are by no means uniformly more liberal than the millennials and that this this sort of you know ever greater liberalization narrative which just assumed that every young generation is going to be more liberal than the last i don't think that's the case i think the generation that comes after the millennials is going to be quite different uh, not necessarily not not necessarily uniformly more conservative in any way that will be familiar to conservatives of, of even my generation but they but they are not by any means, you know, it's it's no me by no means a done deal that they're going to be more liberal. Well, there, there's our redemptive note to end on, isn't it? I mean, I think that the um, the human spirit, the human the human uh, human nature, we always find ways to correct mistakes, and uh, hopefully that'll continue from now on. <laughs> but look, thank thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for uh, giving us this time to discuss some of these um, issues lying behind. Um, the policy decisions we have to make here um and thank you for your contribution and for everything you do in unheard and uh, i would again just recommend unheard as a a wonderful um oasis and haven for a calm uh, intellectually honest discussion thank you thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure been listening to the MRC Podcast 37 with Mary Harrington, a columnist with Unheard. If you'd like to support these podcasts, you can do so by becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Listener.